Now, I want to be really clear just in beginning that there is absolutely no conflict between putting your faith in the God of the Bible and believing in or doing science, you might say. Uh, The fact of the matter is, many well-known scientists believed in or do believe in the God of the Bible. So three old guys we'll start off with. Galileo, of course. He had great faith in God. He said specifically that mathematics is the alphabet with which God has written the universe. Kepler declared his faith in God clearly. Isaac Newton declared his faith in the God of the Bible clearly. Sorry if the screen's bad. We'll have to send you the notes via email if you want them. But also there's new guys, guys who aren't so old. A man by the name of Charles Towns, who was the 1964 Nobel Prize winner in physics, he says, I strongly believe in the existence of God based on intuition, observations, logic, and also scientific knowledge. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. A well-known nanoscientist named James Tour says this, I build molecules for a living, and I can't begin to tell you how difficult that job is. I stand in awe of God because of what He has done through His creation. Only a rookie who knows nothing about science would say science takes away from faith. If you really study science, it will bring you closer to God. Another Nobel Prize winner, a guy named uh, William Daniel Phillips, he said this, I believe in God because of a personal faith, a faith that is consistent with what I know about science. Francis Collins, you ever heard of him? part of the U.S. Genome Project. He says, I believe God did intend in giving us intelligence to give us the opportunity to investigate and appreciate the wonders of His creation. He is not threatened by our scientific adventures. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped both, uh, in both the cathedral and the laboratory. Now, I'm sharing the quotes from these guys, not because I know them personally, or even because I can get anywhere close to understanding their research, <laughs> because I can't. But just to illustrate the fact that we, what we're talking about here is not a competition between science and religion. We're not talking about two sort of diametrically opposed forces at all. We're talking about two complementary Ways that we know things. One being how we observe creation and one being how we receive revelation from the Creator. John Lennox, of course, he's written some great books. He's a great speaker. If you ever get a chance to hear him, we've wanted to get him here one of these days. But John Lennox says this, Relatively, there are many scientists who believe in God. And in Oxford, where I'm a professor, there there are more professors like me who believe in God than you would think. Uh, there are not dozens of them, but they are there. And in Cambridge, too, and elsewhere, we are not a tiny majority. Now, it feels like that, though, sometimes, doesn't it? If you are studying science at a university, you may or may not encounter people who uh, maybe kind of snicker at your faith in Jesus or wonder how could you have that if you're thinking so clearly about science. Now, part of that is because We live in a day and age where there's more and more skepticism about science. And this isn't brand new, but it's 
it's, it's increasing in intensity. So a couple hundred years ago, a famous philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche said this. He says, God is dead, but given the way of men, there may still be caves for thousands of years in which his shadow will be shown. And we, we still have to vanquish his shadows too. Talking about the reality that uh, God, God doesn't really exist, he thinks, but people will still remain religious. Bertrand Russell was another famous philosopher, British philosopher and mathematician. He says, religion is something left over from, our, from the infancy of our intelligence. It will fade away as we adopt reason and science as our guidelines. Now, here's the reality. There were many people after the Enlightenment, during the Industrial Revolution, who thought the more knowledge that we gain by science, the less we will need religion. Yeah, it may linger in as Nietzsche said, in remote caves from place to place, but it'll do, it'll be, eventually it'll just go away. But do you realize, here's, here's the fact, that, sci, that um, faith, specifically faith in Jesus Christ, is increasing in the developed world at a more rapid rate than it ever has. There, there are more and more people, and in certain areas of the developed world, more and more uh, percentages of people who put their faith in Christ now than there ever has been. So even though we might live in a country uh, or be here in the West where it feels like people are walking away from faith, where people are more prone to say that they don't have any faith, the reality is worldwide people are still coming to faith in the developed world. Now, What's difficult is that these ideas aren't things that we can just blow away because there are people who are, they're intent on not just saying that, hey, religion's going to fade away, not that just that it's not necessary anymore, but actually think that religious faith of any kind, but specifically often pick on Christianity, is actually detrimental. You guys might have heard some of these, uh, some of these guys. I'm sorry if you can't see it on the screen. Stephen Hawkins, uh, Sam Harris. Uh, among others. These guys, it's called the Four Horsemen. By the way, I got that graphic actually off of Stephen Hawkins' uh, website. So I'm not, this is not me making up a graphic to make them look silly. This is their own graphic. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse is kind of the idea there. That These are the guys who are going to bring in permanent change. And these are the kind of people that actually believe, not that religious faith is unnecessary, but actually it hurts people. It harms people. It does damage to people. And so as that sentiment comes to a head, it can feel at times like, well, hey, gosh, maybe science is replacing God. Or maybe science should replace God. But I want to give you three main reasons why it shouldn't be. All right? So you should have a little note piece of paper near you like this. It's so you can follow along. Here's the first reason. The first reason is, All worldviews are influenced by the same factors. All worldviews, all right? I'll explain what I mean by a worldview in a second, but one of the things that we have going on today, one of the things that these kind of four horsemen would espouse to is what one writer calls a, an exclusive rationality, and many secular people assume this. Here's, here's what that author says. His name is Tim Keller. He says, exclusive rationality is the belief that science is the only arbiter of what is real and factual and that we should not believe anything unless we can prove it decisively using empirical observation. Do you understand what that means? It basically means this. 
there is a line of thinking today that says only science can determine what's true or factual. Now, there's a problem with that because, well, it's self-defeating, as we'll see in a minute. In fact, interesting, National Geographic magazine, do you, you, we have National Geographic here in Britain. No, yeah, of course we do, yeah. It, this is not a, a religious magazine of any, in any way, shape, or form. Very respected scientific magazine. It says this. Here's a quote from their online magazine. It says, Research indicates that as we become scientifically literate, we repress, notice it says, naive beliefs, uh, but never eliminate them entirely. He's talk, they're talking about individuals now, okay? They lurk in our brains, chirping at us as we try to make sense of the world. Most of us do that by relying on personal experience and anecdotes on stories rather than statistics. The article was just showing the fact that there's no way we're ever going to, science is ever going to get rid of faith in other things. That was the point of the article. So even those who wouldn't necessarily proclaim to have faith, that would say, yes, they think science is the best way, they realize it cannot be the only way. So how are our worldviews influenced? How do we develop our worldview? Well, what is a worldview? First of all, worldview is this. It's basically how we perceive everything. Even if you don't know, didn't know what a worldview was before you came in here, you have a worldview. You have a, a lens by which you view everything in the world. You, you view what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, what is good and what is bad, when something's working, when it's not working. We all have a worldview. And there's three factors that everybody's worldview, whether they be the, the atheist scientific professor or the priest of the church, they all come about their worldview through the same ways. First way is this, the rational. There's a rational influence. What we mean by that is rational as in what we deem to be logically consistent. In other words, every single person thinks about the stuff that they actually believe, not just profess to believe, but actually believe. They think about it and it has to weigh up logically or they usually won't believe it. Now you might say there's an occasional uh, exception to that, I mean, I've met people that would say, I know what you're saying is logical, but I still won't believe it. I'll only believe that. But the reason they're saying that is based on other, another framework for logic. They still are thinking through what they believe, whether they're religious or not. Everybody does that. One of the reasons why it took me a while to come to faith was even though I was wrestling with the big questions of life and and, and wanting to know if there was a God or there wasn't a God or whatever was, because naturally, personality-wise, I'm a cynic. I just don't trust people very well. And as a cynic, I thought, I have to figure this out. I have to think through this. And I had tons and tons of questions. That's the way it is for most people. That's a good thing. There's nothing in Scripture, there's nothing that God has revealed that would tell us to do anything but to think through what we believe. God says to his people, Israel, come now, let's reason together. Though your, skins are as, uh, your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Jesus talks about when he sees a, a lawyer, someone who is, would have been in a Jewish context, an, an intellectual of his day, and he, the lawyer basically says, um, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, well, will you tell me your opinion? What do you think the greatest commandment is? And he says, well, it's got to be to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
and to love your neighbor yourself. Everything is that's worth more than all the burnt offerings in the world. And the Bible says that when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he was using his noodle. That he says to the man, "You're not far from the kingdom." In other words, he says, "You're thinking through this issue, and guess what? That is getting you closer to knowing the God that you profess to know." The Bible encourages us to think. Using our minds, using our rationale is important from a Christian worldview, as it should be. And so listen, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not a believer in Jesus, whatever you believe, you came to that belief in part through a rationale. Now, what we talked about before, that exclusive rationality, is the mindset that says this is the only way we can come to know anything. But the truth is, nobody comes to know anything through simply rationale. It's not just the rational, there's also the emotional way that we are influenced. When I talk about emotional, I don't mean just like, just like I started crying and I had an experience, but it's how we interpret the experiences that we have. And a lot of that has to do with personality. Uh, we, we respond to things in different ways, we interpret things in different ways, but all of us will make interpretations based on what we've experienced. Again, applying this to Christianity. It could be that what you've experienced, if you are a believer today, it could be that you experienced uh, uh, some serious hardship in your life. You didn't know where to turn, so you cry out to God. God meets you where you are, and you interpret that experience as God met me where I was. God has really showed himself because he met me in that place. I had this experience, and therefore I've come to faith in God. That's not the only way you've come to faith. There's a rational element to it, but there's also this emotional element. And the same thing can happen if you don't have faith. You could be one, like many, who say, I can't believe because when I was a little kid and my, my nan was really sick, I prayed to God that he would heal my nan and she died. So I can't believe in that God who doesn't care. What are you doing? You're, you're, that's the, it's, you're making an emotional response. You're interpreting that experience and forming your worldview through that. So there's the rational, there's the emotional, but also, listen, there's what's called the social cultural. And what that has to do with is what those around me believe. It's not an accident that if you grow up in a Christian home, you're more likely to become a Christian. Or if you grow up in a Muslim home, you're more likely to become a Muslim. Or if you grow up in an atheist home, you're more likely to become an atheist. A couple weeks ago, or several weeks ago now, I was doing some street work, trying to have conversations with people on the street, and I was trying to give somebody an invite to church, and they said, oh, no, thanks, man, I'm not interested in that, you know. I'm like, okay, well, what do you believe? And he paused long enough to say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God at all. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. How did you come up with that? Did, you, did, you, did something happen to you or did you rationalize through that? Just trying to engage with this guy. He goes, no, no, my dad was an atheist. I'm an atheist. He, didn't, he, he was an honest atheist. But that's a reality. You see, it's important for us to recognize that all these things, the rational, the emotional, the social and cultural, those things have an impact on what our worldview is, including if you're a scientist. That's a fact. This is reality. So when we, when we want to say, okay, science replaced God, we can't say that because the truth is, even though science can help us 
observe and understand what we're observing in the created universe, it's not the only factor uh, in what influences our beliefs. It just isn't for anybody. I know a lot of people who don't want to put their faith in Jesus, not because they, don't, they, 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 they can't believe the evidence of Scripture or they can't believe the miracles that have happened or they can't believe uh, the things that Jesus has taught. They can't do it because they cannot be the odd man out. They're afraid to be that one person at work or that one person in their family who actually is a believer. What is that? That's a social, cultural influence on their worldview. I can't believe in that because it'll put me on the outside. This is why Jesus deals with this. When Jesus is calling people to trust him, he says, listen, follow me. If you're going to follow me, you have to hate your mother, brother, sister, auntie, uncle, dog. And basically what he was saying was not that you actually wanted to hate those people because we saw last week, right? God calls us to love all people, even our enemies. But because he was saying, basically, your allegiance to me needs to be that high. It needs to be that kind of faith. Because there's going to be this factor that's going to compete. Can you understand how if we just say, I'm going to only focus on one of these things, that one, we're being disingenuous, and two, we're in a dangerous place? What happens to us as believers in Jesus, those of us that are believers in Jesus, what happens to us when we only hold on to the emotional and we reject the rational? What happens to us if we only hold on to the social and cultural? This is the way we did it in our church, or this is how we did it in my country, but we reject the rational or the emotional. What happens to our walk with God if we never have the emotional, if we think what I feel is bad or dangerous, so what I feel I have to ignore. What happens to us then? So as believers, we of all people should know all these influences are real and necessary for us to develop our worldview. And if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, if you're still wrestling with this religious stuff, you need to know these are factors in why you believe or don't believe. So there's no way that just this one factor, the rational factor, and science is about rationality. There's no doubt about it. We're meant to do science rationally. We're meant to apply rules of logic to what we're observing. But there's no way that by itself can be enough for us to find out what truth is. In fact, guys, listen. This is why people, people can observe the same thing and come up with radically different answers. Let me give you some examples that are actually in the Scriptures. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Jesus, I'm sorry, Moses is telling, his, telling God's people, listen, you're about to go into the promised land and you're going to be tempted with certain things as you go into the promised land. Here's what he says. Moses says to his people, listen, take heed lest you lift up your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven that you, and you feel driven to worship and serve them which the Lord your God has given to all the people who are under all. Uh, the whole heaven as a heritage. In other words, he says, listen, be careful because when you go into this land, this new land, you're going to see how beautiful everything is. You're going to see all the stars in the sky. You're going to see all of creation. And you're going to be tempted. You're going to feel driven to worship creation. You're going to feel a drive for that. 
Yet, when that's observed by someone who is a believer, already in covenant with God, the psalmist says this in Psalm chapter 8, O Lord, our Lord, your majesty or your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. When I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Do you see what's going on here? Moses talks about a situation where you're going to go to the promised land, you're going to go to this place that's beautiful, you're going to see all of creation, and you're going to be tempted to worship creation. But when the psalmist sees creation, he worships the creator. They're observing the same thing, but coming up with two different conclusions. Why? Because the only factor in faith is not just the rational. It's the rational, it's the emotional, and it's the social and cultural. It's those things involved together. Now, the Bible talks about this. This is, this is human nature. In fact, human nature is to lean towards the first one. Our default position is to, to fall into the trap that Moses warned the Israelites. Listen to this. This is what Paul writes in the book of Romans. He says, Humans know the truth about God because He has made it obvious to them. In other words, creation declares it. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made, they can clearly see his, his invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, so that they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, that means they knew it existed, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks, and they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like, and as a result, their minds became dark and confused Claiming to be wise, they, they instead became utter fools, and instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to uh, look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. It sounds a bit harsh, but what Paul's doing there is he's saying, listen, this is what human beings do. They see creation, and instead of worshiping a creator, they worship the creation. Now, none of us ever do that with anything else of beauty, ever, do we? So we're doing this fundraiser for Care for Children on the 29th of April, shameless plug, and it's going to be a really great event, and so what we're doing is we're gathering raffle prizes, and one of the prizes that we've gotten so far is a painting that um, Vicki McGahee's done, and if you haven't seen her art, she's an amazing artist, really, really gifted. The whole... All the sisters are gifted in that. It's crazy. Really amazing stuff. And I'll tell you, I've never seen any of the paintings she's done and thought, that painting. I, I never looked at the painting and go, thank you, painting. Or painting, you're amazing. Painting, you're, you're just so... I always go, wow, Vicky, how, how do you do that? I, I glory in what she's done, not in the thing done itself. The thing done itself moves me to think, gosh... That painting, that artistry, that design just makes me think, man, that, that woman's got some gifts. And yet, here's what we do. And this is not just modern day. This is what we've always done as humans. We look at creation and its splendor and its detail. And what do we do? We make up little statues that look like it and we bow down and worship them. Or, 
We form ideas in our head that we've formed. Oh, you know what? Maybe what it is is that we're the best animal that's out there, so really we should just worship ourselves. You see, this is the, this is the thing. We, we, we don't just come to our worldview based on the facts. We never have and we never will. There's always a number of factors. And I'm not saying stop thinking. I'm saying just the opposite. Think, yes. Use your rationale, yes. But don't delude yourself into thinking that somehow you're a unique species that isn't influenced by social, cultural factors and emotional factors. So all worldviews come, uh, are influenced by these same factors. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Scientific uh, observation, or you might say scientific investigation, cannot provide a basis for moral obligation. Here's what I mean by that. What I mean by that is what we can observe with science, when we apply the scientific method to any area of life, in any discipline, that cannot give us a basis for what we ought to do what we must do, what we should do. Now, here's what I mean by that. Listen to this. Darwin says this, right? He says, In the struggle for survival, the fittest win out at the expense of their rivals because they seed in adopting themselves best to their environment. Nothing wrong with that statement. But here's what we observe in... In the world, here's what we observe about natural selection. Not just that the weak die out, but the strong eat the weak. That's what happens. The strong eat the weak. So if we say, okay, what we observe in nature is going to be a basis for our moral obligation, then what we observe should tell us what our moral obligation is, we should eat the weak. We should consume them. They're disposable. Now that means weak physically, or weak intellectually. It doesn't matter what you want to say weakness is, but that's what we should do. Those who are strong should consume the weak if we're going to look at what we observe in science. Now, some people think, well, no, it can't just be that. It can't just be what we've observed in the natural world. It has to be more than that. It has to be what we, as a majority of people, think is right. So the, the greatest good for the greatest amount of people, that's how we decide what morality is. But there's a problem with that. The problem is we can observe in history that majorities often affirm things that are wrong, that are unjust. Listen to this quote from Lord Acton. It's a fairly famous quote. He says, The one pervading evil of democracy is the tyranny of the majority. You guys have heard that phrase before, I'm sure. Or rather of that party, not always the majority, that succeeds by force or fraud in carrying elections. And his point is this. When there is a majority of people that want to do something in democracy, they can make it happen even if there's a whole bunch of people who don't want it. Haven't we seen examples of this more recently in elections and such? This is why there's so much conflict right now. Haven't we seen this historically? We do realize, right, we are aware that not very long ago, some of our brothers that are here, brothers and sisters that are here, that are black, would not be allowed to be in our midst. We would think they were less than we are. That's uncomfortable for me to say, isn't it? You know what? It's true, though. 
That's the way we were. That's how we thought. That's how most people thought. And they were wrong. And they're still wrong. The majority cannot determine what is right. Now it's interesting because science does ex- attempt to explain our moral feelings, but it can't be the ground for a moral obligation. So we can understand certain things by observing human behavior that would say, okay, this is why people tend to feel this way in this circumstance. We can maybe give that explanation, but it can't say this is how we should feel or how we should act, no matter what the circumstance. Science can't provide that. Martin Luther King says this, How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God, and an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law or natural law. In other words, Martin Luther King, and if you ever read letters to Birmingham Jail, you'll see he rooted all the things that motivated him back to the gospel of Jesus. It was a Christian worldview that motivated him to fight for the freedom of his people. Rightly so. More than that, listen, when we talk about moral obligations, when we talk about things that we're obligated to do or that, we're, that, that, that are a standard set for us, think about, we talked about this last week, didn't we? Think about the standard that Jesus sets for his followers. Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That moral standard goes beyond anything that's purely rational, doesn't it? And yet I doubt that any of us, believer or unbeliever, would say, that's a bad idea. See, the point is this, okay? Scientific observation can't provide a basis for moral obligation. It's a fact. We need something more. Here's the last thing. I'm almost done. Scientific observation cannot provide hope in the face of death. The older I get, the more real this becomes to me. In January, I lost my older brother, unexpectedly. He was only 55. Three years ago, I lost my dad. My mom has a type of dementia called permanent progressive aphasia, which means even though she'll probably live for a good 10 years, if there's no other medical complications, she recognizes us less and less each day. I think about death, and I think about what hope can we possibly get from what we observe in the world. You know what death does? It reminds us that we're not in control, that we are utterly and completely not in control. I have a quote here somewhere, if I can find it, from a guy named Carl Sagan. What did I do with that? Somewhere. Is it on the screen? There it is, I found it. Carl Sagan, he was a well-known American cosmologist. Cosmologist, someone who studies the universe, okay? 
And here's what he said. He said, some five billion years from now, after it's burned to a crisp or even swallowed by the sun, there will be other worlds and stars and galaxies coming into being, and they will, they will know nothing of a place once called Earth. There's a happy thought. Happy Mother's Day. And he's dead. Yes, sadly. His point is this, that our lives are pretty meaningless. The hope is there'll be life somewhere else somehow. Carl Sagan on his deathbed was visited. The story, story goes, I don't have any way to, just, to uh, back this up necessarily, but the story goes that Carl Sagan on his deathbed had a Christian friend who came and was wanting to gently persuade him one more time, try to make him think about eternity one more time. And he just said to him, why, why won't you believe? And he says, I don't want to believe, I want to know. But this is a man whose entire career was based on faith. Faith with no evidence whatsoever. Because Carl Sagan, as a cosmologist, he's the one who basically spearheaded the program in the U.S. to find extraterrestrial life, to find signs of life still going. What was that based on? An assumption. No fact, an assumption. No evidence, an assumption. They still haven't found any evidence after 40 years of searching. An assumption. What is that? It's faith. He says, I don't want to believe, I want to know. No, he does believe. He just believed the wrong thing as far as we're concerned. But he's not the only person that knew death was inevitable and didn't have any answers for it. Even in the scripture, it says a similar thing. Ecclesiastes, we think might have been written by Solomon, says this. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing for me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Now, Solomon is writing Ecclesiastes from the perspective of what's life like without God? And he tried to live his life without God. Or if it was Solomon or someone else, we don't know. But this writer was trying to live his life without God, trying to figure out what it would life be without God. And he thought about, okay, even if I accomplish everything I want to accomplish, I die. And in 50 years, no one knows who I am. I'm forgotten. And he says, and if someone accomplishes nothing, you know what happens to them? They die. And they're forgotten as well. That's the thing about death. Death reminds us we are not in control. We cannot create our own eternity. No matter what we do, eventually, people forget about us. But here's the good news. The Bible says that Jesus tasted death for everyone. It says that specifically, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. What does that mean? Well, it means what... It says in Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The idea for us is the idea of in our place. So he became a substitute of what, our physical death? No. Every one out of one person still dies. Of a spiritual death. Of that second death, the scripture calls it. He dies so we don't have to die. See, science can't deal with that. 
There can be people who begin to philosophize and say, well, okay, yeah, but it, because there is no God, because there is no heaven or hell, if that's the case, if that's true, I don't have to worry about anything. I die and it's over. I don't have to worry about anything again. But you know what? That only works when you don't think about what ends. Because when you die, we lose the most precious thing to us, relationships. That's why we don't like death. That's why we hate death. It should be the most natural thing to us, but we hate it. Why? As, it, as the Scripture says, it's the last enemy. We don't want it. Because we know if we have any relationships that are worth anything, we don't want those relationships to end. You see, the Bible teaches us that not only did Jesus taste death for us, but Jesus conquered death for us. You guys remember this story? I'll close with this story. This is after Jesus was crucified. He's risen from the dead, and he's began to appear to a couple of disciples. And he, he ends up appearing to 10 of the disciples at one time. So 10 guys see him at one time, and they're blown away. And so one of them's not there. It's a guy that we call, Tom, or that's known as Thomas, who we sometimes call Doubting Thomas. And they said to the other disciples, they said to the other 10, says to Thomas, they say, we've seen the Lord. We saw him. He's alive. But he replied, I, will not, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. What is he asking for? I want evidence. I want testable evidence. Now, at this point in the story, you might think that what Jesus would have done is say, you know, no, 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 we don't do that. Just believe. Or the apostles would have said, just believe. But what happens next? Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. In other words, there's no way someone could sneak in. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you. I wonder if the guys were like, oh, I hate when he does that. (laughs) And then Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. What's Jesus doing? He's saying, check out the evidence, Thomas. Check it out. What do you see here? Nail prints. You see me before you? You're hearing me speak? Touch. Go ahead. Use your senses. Touch the wounds. Stop being faithless, believe. Now, this is the thing. We're doing this series not because we're trying to say, stop looking for evidence. We're trying to say, start thinking about the evidence. The next time we do this, next Bring and Share, we're going to talk about the evidence of why we trust this book. I've already quoted it a lot today. You might go, yeah, you're quoting the Bible. That means nothing to me. Well, Come back next month and see what it means to you. See why you can trust this book as an historical document. Examine the evidence. Think about that, the reality that your worldview is influenced by the same factors that my worldview is influenced on. We've just come up to different conclusions. But as Jesus says to Thomas, don't be faithless any longer, but believe. What happens when Thomas does this? Thomas 
says, my Lord and my God. That's what he says to Jesus. He exclaims this. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. He didn't say, blessed are those who see me, who believe in me without seeing any evidence, without thinking it through. See, it would be great if Jesus showed up here and we could all line up and go, oh, huh But you know what happened? The next day you'd go, that must have been some grand illusion. You would justify it away. Why? Because you have a choice to believe. So, I know this opens up as many questions as it answers, but that's on purpose. The series is not called Why You Can Know. It's called Why Believe. Why put your faith in the Jesus of the Bible instead of something else? Because it's rational. Because there's nothing else out there that can replace what we have in Jesus.